Well, two weeks ago we looked at the history of sin in terms of the nations and God's people in the Old Testament and how God related to that. And not really the history of sin itself like a theological study, but more of a practical way of when does it get to the point that God says enough, I'm going to judge it. And what is his pattern? What are his patterns when it comes to that judgment? And so we looked extensively over that aspect. What are his patterns when the sins of the nations get to a certain point and he says enough and there is no longer anything that can be done except judgment? When is it in the sins of his people that he says enough and there is no longer any room for anything but judgment? And then what is, how does he work? And we find that what God does um, is uh, while he comes to a point of absolute uh, intoleration of it, uh, from a human perspective, I say, well, he's not really intolerant because he didn't judge them right away. But rather, he waits really over a generation, uh, many times 80 to 100 years. And during that 80 to 100 years, we find prophets coming in and uh, we have this opportunity for them to listen and to heed. And yet they don't heed. They don't respond. God prepares a punishment a uh, as or the deliverance in the case of the flood narrative um, so that there's a means of deliverance uh, the building of the ark that was going on while Noah was preaching and so we have this period of time that God uh, seems to let sin just run rampant and yet he has a handful of voices sometimes just one voice in the terms of Noah sometimes several uh, but many of the prophets were of an overwhelming minority uh, to the point that most of them felt singled out, that they were the only voice. Uh, and some of them even say that to God. I'm, I'm the last one. I'm the only one that's doing your work here. And God says, no, I have some others, just that they are so few and far between that you guys hardly know each other exists. But I do have others who have uh, not bent the knee, so to speak, to the false gods. Uh, so we looked at that two weeks ago. Last week we looked at the church, and we're going to extend that today because I didn't finish last week nearly nearly at all. I got to point one. We read through the New Testament passages that call for, at the end times, a great apostasy. And if we are looking for a return of Christ within this time period, based upon the patterns that we find in the Old Testament, I believe we needed to go back 80 to 100 years to start finding out, are we in a period of, of apostasy? That is, are we in a period where these descriptions of the end times in the New Testament are happening in the church, not just in, in, in germ for it, but in full-blown uh, rebellion, really, against the truth of God's Word. And as we go back and we looked at it historically last week, we looked at what the Bible says is the process of that apostasy, and that is that it began by men not wanting to believe the truth. They didn't want to believe the truth, that instead they wanted to heap up for them teachers, or they just fell for any fable that came along, um, but when we're looking at that end of it, the, the secondary part of it tonight, last week we really just looked at the primary beginning of apostasy is when the church denies the very truth that it's built upon, Jesus Christ and his word. And we looked back when uh, in the late 1800s and then in the early 1900s, we saw its germ was there uh, earlier, of course. But we really saw it coming into full bloom um, in the late 1800s, really. Uh, we find it penetrating even conservative circles. 
uh, mainline denominations in the early 1900s so that by the time you get to the 1930s, you have all-out war, and it was, trust me, all-out theological warfare over the Bible and over the miraculous, over um, God's Son Himself. Um, And so we have that going on uh, in that period of time. What we are seeing today is really the results of that. We're seeing the second uh, part of that description there in Timothy. Um, that first they reject the truth, they don't want the truth, and then that apostasy, that, that condition of the church, um, and we're not talking about the theological true church of all believers, but rather the representation to the world of what is Christianity, the church, God's people, because remember, not all of Israel was Israel. Okay? And so there's an Israel faith, and then there's an Israel the nation. And I believe today we have a church that is the church in terms of God's bride um, that are of faith. And then we have the church that is kind of like national Israel that is the representation of that bride to the world, which is a larger idea. And so I'm going to try to distinguish those two as I go along a little bit. But in this idea of the, of the church being infiltrated and that it's going to be... Uh, follow into this great apostasy those that are calling themselves by the name of Christ even while they deny him and deny his word. And we saw that uh, really taking a a strong foothold in not just... uh, And we look at American history and we recognize that, well, you know, this was going on in Europe and and before us. Um, But again, we're looking at the international scope of American influence not just in terms of politics and economics, but we have been the pace setter, um, unfortunately, for much of the church in the in the world. Um, we sent out the, we were the, the the entity that was sending out missionaries, and we sent them out uh, with those philosophies, and we penetrated many societies with with uh, not only the gospel, the good stuff, but also the nasty stuff was coming out of the United States too, and we forget that. We, we realize, yes, the 50s and 60s, the 40s even, were a great time of missionary effort. And uh, just a few years ago, we celebrated the 100-year anniversary, really, of, uh, of uh, William Carey going out. And, and we look at that, and we think, well, that's a great missionary movement. What you sometimes forget is that there was also a tremendous missionary movement going on by the cults. There was a powerful missionary movement a theological movement going on by the Catholics as well, uh, by Islam, by a lot of people. It was the last, uh, that, that period of time, there was a lot going on, but particularly coming out of the United States, uh, penetrating these third world countries. Uh, we came in with wealth, and that's always appealing, and, and we came with the philosophy that if you have the money, you must be the person that has the answers. And uh, that's okay if the person has the truth, um, but it's not okay if it's just a generic principle because then anything that's being fed down their, down their throats from that perspective is going to be accepted. And I think uh, Jim Lawson gave a great example of that where they had a place where the gospel went. They established a church. There was a break in contact uh, that they didn't have any 
association with that church down in southern uh, Peru there for a number of years, for 20 years. Others went in there, infiltrated it, and they got to the point of really not believing anything anymore. And they went back in there to try to recontact them and found that they were in horrible error. Uh, and this has been going on all over. And so as we look at the our own history, we are going to look at really the global history as well of this apostasy. And so we looked at the attack on God's Word, and we looked at uh, uh, it occurring in that time period. Uh, we have the onslaught of many different theologies. Uh, some of them uh, weren't derived from here, but they were the result of our philosophy. And uh, we saw a lot of impact in uh, third world countries of liberation theology, it penetrated the United States, especially among our African-American population. Uh, the whole idea that uh, we are going to um, uh, press a social gospel where we are going to elevate people um, and that the real sin is poverty, discrimination, things like that. That that's the sin and capitalism became the great enemy. And I'm not here to support capitalism, but neither am I going to support the alternative uh, that they were proposing of liberation theology. See, and all this stuff coming out uh, where men were rejecting the truth. And it penetrated our seminaries, our colleges. And, and as soon as it does that, then uh, about a 10-year uh, transition, then it starts into our churches. And we had strong fundamental churches, um, really not just in the United States, but all around the world, that were being given over to this Rejection fundamentally of the truth of God's word as authoritative, as inerrant, as inspired, and uh, right down the list. And so we saw that happening on a scale that we really haven't seen before. There have always been those who have wanted to do this, um, and we have seen it through history. Um, but this level of apostasy among uh, those that claim God's word um, is insidious and that we have seen today. So what we want to do tonight is we want to press this forward and go to the second half of that description where it says that once you uh, deny the truth, once you reject God's word, that then you are set up for fables. You are set up for hearing things and for uh, legalism. You're set up for all these different things that uh, you'll be listening to uh, deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. And we're going to talk a little bit about that of of the demonic element involved in some of the what's being taught today that we've already kind of referenced on Sunday mornings, but we've looked at these and we see them um, that once we abandon sound doctrine, we want to hear what we want to hear. Uh, but it begins by denying the truth and then listening to fables, to just whatever we want. And so before we get into the uh, circumstances that we're seeing and the outflow of really what happened um, at the turn of the century uh, between 70 and 100 years ago, uh, I want to go Lord in prayer. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. We do thank you for your word before us. And we pray that as we uh, look into this and see your work in our world and see how the world has rejected it and see your work in the church and how your church has rejected it and how far down this road we really are. And, Lord, we can wring our hands today, but we see where the seeds were sown. We see where they were watered. We see where they took root in the consciousness of your people. 
that we stopped thinking biblically and started thinking really for ourselves, according to our own interests and desires. And, and as you've described, that we rejected your truth. And Lord, help us to not only examine that and point a finger at where that sin is and how developed it is, but that we might also uh, recognize the need to be guarded. Uh, We pray for your Spirit's help in this tonight in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in our study we saw, particularly among God's people, um, two weeks ago that there were three areas that we want to really address um, in Israel. Remember, they were in paneled housing. They were very wealthy. And in that condition of wealth, they considered that they must be right because God has blessed them with wealth. And they took on the philosophy of the world that whoever is richest must, their God must, or their service of that God must be genuine or true. And we have really swallowed that hook, line, and sinker. And we've really ignored those minor prophets and major prophets and said, wake up. You know, this isn't... this." This isn't uh, the, the measure of your rightness is your wealth. And in, we find Israel engaged in idolatry of multiple sorts and particularly insidious to God was the fact that they were pluralist, that they said, we're going to serve God on Sunday. We're going to serve this God on Saturday. Well, they wouldn't serve it. They would have served their God on Saturday. Sorry, Israel. I'm going to serve this God of uh uh, these nations on this day, and we have the high places where we can go. We have the temple or the Levite's house or the where, where we can go worship. Um, and there's this, this syncretism that we're going to worship God and. And God was completely displeased with that. Um, that he uh, hated, and that is what he picked out. We do have other elements of social injustice. That was there. Uh, that was going on, that you were getting rich on the backs of the poor. Uh, and so we have those kinds of things, uh, other sins listed as well. But if you want to really boil it down to what was it that Israel, the northern kingdom, was, was most caught in, it was this idolatry that was wrapped up in their, in their uh, economics, in their wealth. And we, uh, not just in this country, but really I think globally, we have this... Uh, penetrating us. And again, uh, once you cast off God's word as your rule of life, as your uh, measure of practice, um, you are going to drive into this. And in fact, uh, early on, it is the motive for those that are coming in with destructive doctrines. Their goal and objective, according to those passages we read last week in Timothy, was the God of their stomach that they go in there with the idea of getting rich off of God's people. Um, and so you want to develop covetousness because you're covetous. You want to uh, rationalize that away, that that's okay. And, uh, and then you want to instill it in others. And uh, why? Because then when you walk around in great wealth, they'll think, oh, he must be so spiritual. God, look how God has blessed him with all that wealth. Wow. One day God's going to make me rich and then I'll know that He's pleased with my life. And so the false teacher comes in and preaches and teaches that kind of philosophy. We swallow it because we've already kind of turned away from the truth of God's Word. Um, That's impossible. I mean, Jesus makes ridiculous statements that that are just so absurd that, that they still bother us. You know, 
Give away everything you have and come follow me. I mean, let's be quite honest with ourselves. That if Jesus walked in the room today and asked you to do that, most of us, if not all of us, would walk away sorrowing. And so a health, wealth, gospel preacher comes in on the scene and we are ready to gobble up whatever he's given us um, by the manipulation of God's word. And so we find that idolatry coming in and uh, it takes some interesting uh, directions uh, that I want to develop a little bit. I already mentioned covetousness, which uh, we are told in the Bible is idolatry. It is the elevation of the acquisition of stuff I want that. Oh, I wish I had that. Oh, you have that. Oh, I wish I could afford that. This is idolatry. You are raising those things that if I had such and such, I would then be happy and I will not be content. And that is idolatry. And I want you to see how this has penetrated the church. And and, and by the way, let me just take a little moment in God's Word. Let me, um, let's go to 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy passage that we read. Oh, I didn't read it. I'm sorry. I did not read this last week. Uh, 2 Timothy, I read chapter 4 about the, um, the time when men will not endure sound doctrine. Uh, but I did not read 2 Timothy chapter 3. So let me read that. And then there's another portion of 2 Peter I want to read as well. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 and following says, But know this, that in the last days perilous times will come, for men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanders, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Now everything on that list has been around for a long, long, long time. And you might say, well, everything on that list, is there's nothing new there. There's nothing substantially different. So what's going to be unique about the end times? Uh, I think we have to go to the very next verse where I stopped. Uh, and that was verse 5, having a form of godliness. We have baptized all these sins right into the church. This is the horrible thing that will happen in the last days. This is the peril of the church, is that we take these very sins and we sanctify them, we kind of you know, whitewash them, and we bring them into the church. Having a form of godliness, but denying its power. All these people described, unthankful people, unholy people, we're, we're calling them godly. There are spiritual leaders. There are mentors. They're the people I look up to. These are the ones that have a form of God. They look godly. And we even look at their exercise of these sins and say, oh, they're so godly. Because of, look how wealthy they are. And we have those televangelists that are out there that just... They, they openly want to flaunt it because they have convinced us that that means God's blessed me and God's approved of me. How is that any different than Israel? God, shut up, prophet. God has approved us because we're wealthy. We have paneled houses. We have summer cabins. We have a boat over there in Lake Galilee for our recreation. Sea of Galilee, sorry. For some reason, the lakes are seas and the seas aren't a strange place. 
And so we find uh, that attitude in Israel where God finally says, enough, I'm going to judge you. Well, it's not about being in the world. It's always been there. It's about bringing it into the church, not only of tolerating it, but making it spiritual. That somehow we have some spirituality to loving ourselves. That there's a spirituality to loving money. That there's a spiritual rightness to boasting. And yeah, that goes on in churches today. There's a spiritual pride that's okay. And yes, there's even blasphemy that is spiritualized. We might say, well, that's in all the liberal, liberal churches. Um, I, I have bit myself and grabbed my chair in several services. I can only think of one time that I walked out and said, I'll never go back. And uh, you might say, wow, what kind of horrible church were you in? It wasn't a church at all. It was a meeting of pastors. And our special speaker used words that my children are not allowed to use, that I don't use. And he was not using them in a biblical sense, but in the sense that the world uses them. And we concluded that um, we didn't need a uh, R-rated sermon. The sad thing is, is that my brother, pastors, thought it was funny. They laughed. That's not in a liberal church. That's in a bunch of G-A-R-B-C pastors. So yeah, even blasphemous things are being baptized into our church. We can go right through the list. We think that being disobedient to parents is somehow become some weird warped sense of godliness. And we go right down through this list and we find it being brought into the church and sanctified, set apart as though it's somehow a good thing. And Paul says when that happens... Know that you are in the perilous times. We are in the time of apostasy. So how bad has covetousness penetrated, which is idolatry, penetrated the church? How much do we believe that material wealth equals God's blessing, which is what Israel's idea was? Um, I want you to... We're going to go back a little bit, and I'm just going to pick... I, I have lots of examples, but I can't use them all. I don't have time. I don't have time to use these. Um, I've already mentioned the health-wealth gospel. That's been around for a while, most of my lifespan, that health-wealth mentality, that if you accept Jesus Christ, God wants you healthy and He wants you wealthy, and that that's the evidence. That has been here. It is, it is rampant. And, and when I travel overseas, I see it rampant there too. I saw it in Haiti. I mean, this is the poorest nation on earth, and they have that mindset. And they'll take anything that comes from the United States as absolute truth. Why? Because you're rich. So you must be right. 
And when I sat down with three or four of the pastors and I challenged them, I said, you have to be careful what's coming out of the United States right now because we're in a horrible condition. They said, oh, no, no, no. America is wonderful. They swallow everything that comes out of this country because they believe this mentality. And so when we look at this, that health wealth gospel is everywhere. If you want to really see how hungry the church is to hear that and how pleasurable it is to them, let me consider, let, 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 let's us consider how quickly, I know it's kind of a fad that's faded now, but I just want you to think about it because some people are still living that very much today. Um, how many of you remember the prayer of Jabez? The big movement, you should all be praying the prayer of Jabez. What was the prayer of Jabez? Did anyone bother to really study out who this character Jabez was? What was the prayer of Jabez? Oh, expand my border. Fill my pockets, Lord. It's essentially what the prayer of Jabez boils down to is the health, wealth, gospel. And look how quickly we all pick it up. And it's a best-selling movement. It's the big, 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 big thing. And we got to all pray the prayer of Jabez because God wants us all rich. He wants to have vast lands and lots of cattle. and, and um, None of you have cattle, but um, he wants us to have all this stuff. Oh, boy, we love that. Never mind the context, never mind the, any of that. We're just going to buy into it. So we have covetousness that has come upon us and has been sanctified and brought into the church and if you want to know just how bad this is compared to church history, um, throughout most of church history, discounting some of the dark periods in the in Catholic theology um, where they were building the Vatican and drawing wealth out of people. Um, and again, they had a different perspective. Um, their perspective was, we're going to take your money to serve God um, without the idea that you should have money. But throughout that time, the evidence of real spirituality was the denial of the flesh, the denial of materialism. That was the evidence of one who was committed fully to God. We have, in addition to this kind of idolatry of covetousness, um, what uh, one writer has referred to intellectual idolatry. And he calls it um, the devaluation of, of uh, God's Word, is intellectual idolatry. That we're going to serve the God of our intelligence, our intuition. That that has been raised up above the level of God's Word. That if it doesn't fit into my logic, therefore I can reject it. If it doesn't make sense to me, it isn't truth. And we have that in the church extensively. To the point that when I stand to preach the truth of God's Word, I'll have people take up arms and say, oh, no. I was like, well, that's what the Bible says. But that doesn't make sense to me, Pastor. I don't really care. And I don't really care if it makes sense to me. It's not that we are irrational. We are super rational if we are biblical. And sometimes that means that our intellect must be put where it belongs, and that is 
well below God's word and let God's word dictate to it. So we have, I believe, what that writer wrote is intellectual idolatry. And he gave one interesting example that I want to just use today. Actually, there's two of them here. Um, I think uh, one evidence that came out again in our recent days that is the child fully birthed and matured of intellectual idolatry um, was the Da Vinci Code. I think that was a great example of that, that we're going to go out there and search for anything and pervert God's Word uh, based upon all this stuff that we can point to and, and claim that all these intellectuals thought. And based upon that, that bunch of fables, and it is fables, it is a bunch of make-believe, what the Da Vinci Code, but think of how many people have rejected Christ and how many Christians have rejected fundamentally Jesus Christ because of the Da Vinci Code. Again, that wasn't the problem. The problem was we rejected God's Word a hundred years ago. That is the result. That kind of thing coming into homes that are called, called Christian, coming to churches that are called Christian. The other example that he gives is just go out into the world today and try to consider the idea of demonic activity. Introduce it in any conversation. Apply it to anything that God's Word applies it to. Apply it to the crazy man that's running around naked in the cemetery and violent. Call him demon-possessed today. What will happen? What will happen? We are too sophisticated for that kind of nonsense anymore, aren't we? We're too smart for that. Because after all, we have this whole field of psychology and we understand the mind and the brain and the chemicals and all that um, as if somehow the demon possession is only a spiritual thing and doesn't have any material evidence? You don't think that when a demon possession occurs that there's going to be chemical imbalances? My wife and I have often commented how many times um, things turn towards religious things whenever we have psychosis involved. How religious it always gets that we turn on the news or read an article and God told me to go slaughter all those people. I had this vision of this and that and, and how religious it always gets. And But we can't possibly use the word demonic because then you're not reasonable. You're not rational. We have come so far that we cannot teach we cannot practice Christianity as a war against the demonic because we don't recognize it anymore because we're just too sophisticated for it. This is intellectual idolatry. And it's penetrated our churches big time. And I love that statement in God's Word where, where Jesus walks in and deals with the demonic in what place? In the synagogue. 
But we don't want to recognize it. We don't want to acknowledge that it exists because we're not really prepared to deal with it because we're so far down this road of apostasy that we're not capable of dealing with it. So we just turn our blindness to it, call it something else. Well, that's just this ism or that ism or that ism. And we'll chemically try to shut them down, um, try to <laughs> deal with the, the effect instead of the cause. And never can we ever use the terminology that God's Word used that that's a demon possession. This is how far intellectual idolatry has penetrated the church. That these kinds of activities or inactivities are acceptable. And that to do anything different just shows that you're crazy. Let's go on to Judah. i got six minutes. This is really going slower than I wanted to go. I really wasn't planning on doing all this time on this. Judah, self-determination. We saw it in 2 Timothy chapter 3, self-love. We find it, uh, if you want to uh, look at other places, uh, self-determination. When Judah says to God, that's impossible. We are going to follow our own evil minds. We are going to follow our way, our pattern, our uh, belief of what's true. And that's in Jeremiah 23, if you're wondering where I'm quoting from. Um, go to Jeremiah real quick. I'm, I, it's worth more to you to read it out of God's Word than to hear what I have to say. Jeremiah 23. I'm sorry, that's the prophet and priest passage. Jeremiah 16. We studied this two weeks ago. No, 18. (laughs) Stick with me. I'm throwing this out there. Jeremiah 23 was about the prophets and priests, and we talked about that a little bit, that they're part of the problem. Um, Jeremiah 18 Um, God just gets done saying in verses 6 through 11 um, that I'm the potter and you're the clay. Uh, That means that I'm in control and you should submit. I'm the guy that sets up uh, and pulls down kingdoms. If I want to lift it up because it obeys my truth, then I'll do it. If if it turns from it and does evil, I'll tear it down. I do those things. Trust me. I can take care of things for you. Um, I can tear up. I can tear down the people that are your enemies and I can build you up if you'll simply follow me. Uh, Verse 11, and it says, Thus says the Lord, and halfway through, Behold, I'm fashioning a disaster and devising a plan against you. Return now, everyone, from his evil way. Make your ways and your doings good. Repent. Because I'm about to tear you down. I could, I'm the guy that can do that. Verse 12, they said, That is hopeless, so we'll walk according to our own plans. We'll, everyone, obey the dictates of his evil heart. We're going to do what we want. Self-determination, and God called this the most wicked thing they did. This was worse than what Manasseh did. This is worse than offering your children a sacrifice. And we studied that two weeks ago. This is the worst. The sin of Judah that put the nail in the coffin, so to speak, was this self-determination. And we see it in 2 Timothy 3.1, this whole idea of self-love, of boasting, of this arrogance, of this headstrongness, that we are the measure. We've abandoned God's truth, 
we fall for fables that are out there, but fundamentally, we want to have the right to decide what is truth and what isn't truth, and we have self-determination as the evidence of that. It is the force behind the women's liberation movement that we talked about this morning a little bit. Throw off what God's Word says is debilitating you. You should elevate yourself. We're as good as men. I don't remember any men saying you weren't. I don't remember God saying you weren't. All I know of God saying is that you're different. It wasn't about better and worse. It was about different. The world says, throw that off. You're in charge. Throw off authority. And if you look through this list in 2 Timothy 3, look at how much of it is the throwing off of authority. Disobedient to parents. Slanderers. Traitors. Headstrong. Haughty. I mean, you go through this thing and you look at how much of this deals with the whole notion of self-determination that has penetrated our churches. I get what I want. And this, Paul and Peter and all of them have focused in on, I've just pinpointed that the idea that they were going to hear what they want to hear. And I decide whether this church is worth attending based upon whether you're telling me what I want to hear. Not, am I getting fed the pure milk of the Word? Am I getting fed the meat of God's Word? But rather, am I hearing what I want to hear? And why is it so prevalent today? Look at our seeker movement. (laughs) What are the seeker movement? These mega churches that are designed based upon the premise of what do you want to hear? And we'll give you that. Just please come. And you could say that's out there in liberal churches, but I went, I was at the state fellowship meeting in Ohio where the state rep of the, of the Ohio churches of the GRBC handed out one free copy of that man's book to every single pastor. Purpose driven church. Saddleback Community Church. I go into a church planter's office and I'm sitting there seeking to evaluate what's going on up there in Colorado and, and I sit down and, and I, I sit down at his desk and I say, well, what's your strategy? And he pulls out, guess which book? Rick Warren's book. And you should have seen how worn and marked up and, and how many pages were dog-eared and I mean, he had that thing memorized. And I said, brother, burn it. Open your Bible. Get on your knees. Because what this man espouses is that you go out there, find out what everyone wants to hear, and if you tell them what they want to hear, they'll come. What does that sound like? Apostasy. It sounds like the end times. But that is the model. That is the model. Not just in this country. I about flipped out when I saw that same book in India. 
It's the model. Just got to tell them what they want to hear. You'll grow big and strong and influential. And then you can sneak a little truth in on the side. doesn't work. It just doesn't work. Self-determination. Give us what we want. We decide. Our itching ears is all about us. We'd rather hear fables than the truth. And this is nothing new. We are seeing it fully matured now. Second Peter, we haven't gotten into, but Second Peter 3, 3 and 5 talks about the, they say Christ isn't going to come, Christ isn't going to come. Uh, you know, you guys have been saying that for years and years and years. Christ isn't going to come. And uh, they say, you know, our forefathers have fell asleep. All things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Nothing's changed. You people that believe there's an end to everything and that hey, you guys are full of it. And um, verse 5 says, For this they willfully forget. By the word of God, the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of water and in water, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. So they come across scoffing it. Scoffing truth. We can talk about the moral decay. And by the way, the evolutionary teaching that has penetrated, evolutionary theology is rampant in our churches um, and AIG may be trying to stem the tide, but the fact is, is that it's there and it is real and um, it is the mainstream. We find our theology built upon uh, the teaching of men like Bultmann and, and uh, uh, Bonhoeffer and others uh, historically out of the early 1900s that have influenced our thinking um, to such a degree now that we hardly even recognize it. I go to our association fellowship again. This is a pretty conservative bunch. And I go into some of the pastoral sessions that are going to deal with theology and I hear them lifting up Bonhoeffer. I'm like, what are we doing? He's not even near us theologically with his religionless Christianity. Now, it doesn't refer to what you guys often use, that I don't have a religion, I have a relationship. That's not what he was saying. By religionless. We have all of this decay that has been going on. We have the emergent church movement today. There's more nonsense. We have the mainstreaming of cults, more. And we basically have the Christian community being treated largely as a market, as a group of consumers, as a voting block, than as a body of born-again believers. And so we can set aside all of our differences, even with cults and others, for a common perceived goal. Judah was condemned because instead of trusting in God and God alone, they said, we have to send to our neighbors for a common objective, and that is to fight off these Assyrians. So I'm going to call up Egypt. 
And I got to tell you, in this last election, the church called up Egypt big time. Hello, Mormons. Can you help save our country? Because you're pro-life too. You're against what we're against, so we can join forces with you. God told Judah, because of that, I reject you. Because you've rejected me. Yeah, Egypt has a common enemy with Assyria. And what's funny is the Assyrians laughed at it. The Assyrians laughed at them. You're trusting in that little willow, that little twig down there called Egypt? You think they're going to come help you, save you from us? Well, one guy stood up and said, no, I'm going to trust in God. And he got on his knees and he was the king. His name was Hezekiah and he prayed and he repented. And not long after that, the Assyrians were gone. Gone. This is what we are called to. When we see this, other things, I've got a lot here. We see it full-blown. That we aren't searching and looking under every rock to find this stuff. It is thrown in our face day after day. Not by the world, but by our churches. Not by the heathen, but by Christians. I can't get over how many conversations I have with unbelievers who haul off this statement, well, I know such and such, and he's a committed Christian, and he doesn't have a problem with it. Does that happen to you too? Because fundamentally today, there isn't a difference. Because we look like the world, for we have invited her into our church, and we take all of our cues from her. And so, when we look at that description here, yeah, we um, recognize we are well down this road. We are not waiting for an apostasy. We are not waiting for the church to come into its hardship. We are there. And I don't know how much lower it can go than having churches acclaim homosexuality as appropriate I don't know how much lower that we can go than them saying that God didn't create the heavens and the earth in seven literal days, six literal days. I don't know how much lower we can go in declaring that you can't love others unless you love yourself. I don't know how much lower we can go. For we have sanctified every sin on the list and said it's okay to be in the church. What is our response? Our response is to take a stand and to say, I need to recognize all this garbage has influenced my thinking, not just from the world, but from within the church. And I pick up books like this from 1976, Tensions in Contemporary Theology, and I find that this much of it is given to my view. And this much of it is given to stuff that I consider 
heretical, demonic teaching. I'm on page 437 before I get to any view that I would espouse. And interestingly, within that context and that author, we have this statement. Religious groups tend to react to most issues just as would be expected on the basis of their political, economic, and sociological makeup with scant regard for their doctrinal commitments. That was based upon a sociology professor of religion, a, religious, a sociologist of religion, that's a weird title, um, and his uh, survey work within churches. And he calls his paper The Noise of Solemn Assemblies. That we react just as would be expected on the basis of our political, economic, and sociological makeup with no regard, scant regard for our doctrinal commitment. That is that if you ask the church a question, if they're a black church, they're going to answer it like a black community would. If they're an upper middle class church, they're going to answer those questions and those issues just like the upper middle class in the world would. But the only thing that's really influencing our, that the one thing that is not influencing any of our reactions and positions is our doctrine. It has the least influence in the church is our doctrine. This is his survey work of evangelical churches. He was very specific. And this was written in 1976. It was already there then. Where are we at now? So Christ comes, and the question is, what will we do? And so our thinking needs to be, what does God say about, and fill in the blank. And that's a challenge that I've taken up in my life. And it's taken me in frightening places in the last year or so. And I think our study in Corinthians is starting to demonstrate that. But I want to challenge you. What does God say about this? This stuff that I've just accepted because it's been the way it has been all my life. That doesn't make it right. Not if we've been a hundred years into an apostasy. We may not have heard the truth on some of these issues. We may not be even thinking, asking the right questions anymore. And I want to start asking fundamental questions so I can root out unbiblical god hating philosophies in my thinking and in my life. It's hard work, but I want to please my Savior. And from what I can tell, the only way I can do that is to repent, to confess my holding to these kinds of theological positions or social positions thoughtlessly. I need to confess that as sin before God that I wasn't willing to carefully examine my ways, or as Haggai says, consider your ways. Think about them. Are they really biblical? Is it really okay to do what I've been doing, even if I've been doing it for 50 years? And no one 
has ever challenged it as right or wrong. That's not good enough. Not when we've had apostasy in our land for a hundred years. That, what you think is right and wrong, is not good enough 